to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. Hezekiah's illness and how he cried to the Lord in his illness and God heard him and uh, restored him and gave him another 15 years Uh, The principal importance of that, of course, being that an heir to Hezekiah was born uh, during the period of that 15 years grace that God gave to him. And the first verse of chapter 39 picks up that thread. At that time, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of his illness and of his recovery. And as I was saying, this first verse of chapter 39 introduces us to the king of Babylon and prophesies at the end of the chapter the exile of God's people into the land of Babylon. Throughout the whole of the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, the prophet has been saying in different ways and at different times to the people of Judah that if they would persist in disobeying God, if they would continue to refuse to hear his voice, if they would sit lightly to both his promises and his threats and put their trust in man and in human resources and human wisdom, then the day would come when God would come down in judgment upon them. And the judgment was spelled out several times over. It was that their land would be overrun and their palaces and their temple ravaged, and the choicest of their people carried away captive into a strange land. Now that uh, threat reaches its climax in this chapter, and we know, of course, it's an historical fact that that actually did happen when the Babylonians came and captured the cream of the young life of Judah and took them away to Babylon into captivity. And it is from that background that the book of Daniel, of course, is written. And some of the references in places like Psalm 137, where the people of God say, we sat down by the rivers of Babylon, and there we wept when we remembered Zion. Sing us one of the Lord's songs, they said. And we said, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And they sat down by the rivers of Babylon and remembered what the Lord had said. And the whole of this nation's history, it's really a a, a dreadful thing to think about. That here at a national level, not just a personal level, but a national level, There is a nation in tears because they have not been willing to listen to God. They are looking back, you see, and saying, Now, the Lord meant what he said. The Lord was not speaking lightly to us. What fools we have been. And they wept when they remembered Zion. Now that happens, of course, at a personal as well as at a national level. But it is the history of Israel and it is presented to us here as a real lesson from God. 
Now, the dark shadow of Judah's ultimate enemy is cast over Hezekiah here in the visit of the king of Babylon. And the tragic thing is that Hezekiah himself, the great and good king of Judah as he was, did not recognize the danger. He was unable to grasp the peril that this shadow of Babylon represented. And that, of course, is not to detract in any sense from Hezekiah's qualities. It's just to say that he was a man and not God, an earthly king and not a divine messiah. And what remains in Isaiah's prophecy is that God is going to meet the needs not just of Judah, but of the whole of his people throughout the whole earth by sending not an earthly king, but a divine Messiah. And that is what from this point onwards unfolds in the prophecy of Hezekiah. Now Hezekiah was uh, underlining for us here by his errors the lesson that Isaiah has been seeking to teach all the way through and that we were reminded of in prayer a few moments ago. And that is that the calling of Judah as God's people was to trust in the Lord. The great question that kept meeting them at every juncture of their life is, where is your confidence placed? In whom are you trusting? And the answer so often came back from Judah's behavior that they were trusting in alliances that they had made themselves. They were trusting in politics and scheming of their own to gain some link with an earthly power that would make them a stronger nation because Judah was just a tiny little nation. And uh, the greatest you hear again is, you see, in whom are you going to trust? Now Babylon appears on the horizon and the Babylonian envoys come and they appear in Hezekiah's court and is immediately impressed by the possibilities of gaining friends here. And it's the whole question again. Where is your confidence placed? Is it in the Lord or is it somewhere else? Now Hezekiah had been tested in all sorts of different areas, you'll remember, in these last four chapters. He has been tested in the area of naked opposition, the kind of opposition that came to him from those who ridiculed him from Assyria. You'll remember earlier on they stood and shouted towards Hezekiah's palace, ridiculing and mocking him because they were so few in number, because Assyria was such a great power. And they poured scorn on Judah, and Hezekiah was tested in that area. He was tested in the whole area of his own personal life, his physical health in the previous chapter. And that was a real test for him. But in both of these areas, he came through the test victoriously. And now he's tested 
in an unfamiliar area. The testing is different, and Hezekiah has apparently not been prepared for it. It's a very significant thing for us to recognize that when the devil comes to attack, he has, as Spurgeon used to say, an infinite number of weapons in his armory. It's a thing that we readily forget. We imagine that the devil's weaponry is all of the one kind. Spurgeon says he has an infinite number of weapons in his armory. And here he uses a completely different form of attack upon Hezekiah. The first element in it, do you notice, is flattery. First of all, scorn and insult and assault, and then an attack upon his health. And now, what seems in many ways to be quite the reverse, because in the aftermath of his healing, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent him letters and a gift to say, delighted to hear that you're so much better. This is really big news for the world because, you see, Babylon was a major power in the ancient world. And they are writing to Hezekiah and saying, everybody here is charmed to know that you are so much better. We are all so thankful to hear this good news. And, uh, of course, to get letters at all from Babylon, if you were the king of Judah, was really quite something. It was a little bit like the president of the United States writing to the convener of the Strathclyde region and saying, so glad to hear that you've got so much better. He would be greatly flattered, you see. And actually, the parallel's fairly close because Judah was almost exactly the same size as the Strathclyde region. If you want to know how big Judah was, that's how big it was. And Babylon was this vast area, you see. Now when the letter came, can you just imagine how Hezekiah is preening himself and saying, my goodness me, do you see what it says on the top left-hand corner of the envelope? The king of Babylon sending a letter to me and interested in my personal welfare. And then by the parcel post there came this gift from the king of Babylon to add to the flattery, you see. We are delighted to hear that you're so well, he says. Now, I don't know if you remember the last time that Hezekiah got an important letter in the post. It was from Assyria. And um, it was in chapter 37 that we're told about it and in verse 14. He got um, a letter which threatened the whole of Judah and Hezekiah personally. And you notice what he does in chapter 37, verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter. It was probably the nastiest letter he had ever had in his life. From the messengers and read it. Now what did he do with that letter? He went up into the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Now, the simple point is that in chapter 39, verse 1, he should have done exactly the same with this letter from Babylon. 
But it's a human failing, isn't it? And a tendency that we all find in our own hearts to spread the problems out before the Lord. But when things like this come, that's rather a different story. Somehow deep down we feel we don't really need him in the same fashion. Isn't that true? Don't you find that in your own heart? Well, this is certainly what he found here. Ilona, do you know what I think? I think somebody's not very well and you're going to have to go away. <laughs> and we will uh, allow you to go with great regret. But I think it's a tremendously important thing to see, you know. They didn't have pages and buzzers and things like that in, um, in his day, but they had letters, and this letter came so very flattering. And Hezekiah fell for it. Now, you know, the devil can very often have a very smooth tongue. And he can speak with great flattery and can so often deceive the very elect. And that is exactly what happened to Hezekiah, of course. He received the envoys, verse 2, gladly and showed them what was in his storehouse. But the real issue is, you see, that uh, the devil had tripped him up, not by ridiculing him or insulting him, but by complimenting and flattering him. People used to ask, you know, um, I have often um, been asked to speak at ministers' meetings and, and meet fraternals and things like that, you know. It's the thing I almost universally refuse to do. But I remember being asked to go and speak at a minister's fraternal in the United States on one occasion. And they gave me the subject. And you know what the subject was? Handling criticism. Now, I'm not sure whether they thought I was an expert at this or not, but uh, that was the title. And I tried to talk to them from 1 Corinthians 4, where Paul's got an interesting passage, incidentally, on handling criticism. But I tried to talk to them about that. But you know, I think it might have been just as important for them to ask me to speak to them on handling praise. Because... There are some people who are able to handle criticism who can't handle praise. Because what praise does for them is it inflates them, you see. Criticism wrongly handled abases you and makes you dig a hole for yourself in the ground. It can be an appalling thing. And you cry to people, well, somebody scraped me off the floor. But praise... And flattery can so often create quite the reverse problem. It can mean that we become confident of ourselves rather than of the Lord. And that we do not deflect the praise to him to whom it alone belongs. But we receive it for ourselves. I often say to people, you know, flattery 
and praise don't do you any harm so long as you don't believe a word of it. The real problem comes when you start believing what people are saying and think that there's a measure of truth in it. That's when the real trouble begins. But here, Hezekiah was stumbled by that. Now, of course, you will realize that Merodach Baladan's purpose was not in any sense genuine. His purpose was political. He wanted an alliance with a nation who would help against Assyria. Assyria was the common enemy, and Judah was strategically placed in an area where Babylon didn't have any influence. And they wanted an alliance there, even just as a springboard to have an assault on Assyria from the south. But they wanted to use Judah. And they were not in the least bit interested in any kind of altruistic encouragement. Now, that is exactly the characteristic of the devil's intentions. He wants to use us for his own purposes. And you need to be able to distinguish between encouragement which genuinely desires to bring glory to God and the kind of flattery which is a political device which is intended to be used for human ends. Now, that's where Hezekiah's mistake, mistake was made then. He failed to spread everything out before the Lord. And we need to ask ourselves about that in our own lives, don't we? The real tendency that we have to spread things out before the Lord when there is trouble brewing or when we are in situations of adversity, but to seek to get along ourselves quite happily, thank you, when we are in the midst of different circumstances. Now, because he failed to spread this letter before the Lord, he immediately began to display, do you notice, a remarkable absence of wisdom and discretion and discernment. And wisdom and discretion and discernment are spiritual qualities People do not learn them by being educated somewhere. They learn them through a deepening relationship with God himself and with confidence growing in him and applying to him for their wisdom. And Hezekiah found that he was displaying an absence of wisdom and discretion. You notice what he does. He begins to show them immediately everything that was in his storehouse. Now they were potential enemies, of course. And their reputation, if even he had paused to think about it, would have told him that. He showed them the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine oil, his entire armory, and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. He is a bit like a householder who invites a burglar in and shows him exactly where everything's kept, you know. Now, that's exactly what he was doing. So he failed the test 
of flattery and fell flat on his face as it were before it second test he failed was the test of pride which is a close relative of course because he began the very text itself uses the phrase he began to show off to show off his goods and so on now if you turn back in your Bible to 2 Chronicles chapter 32 verses 27 to 29 you will see the chronicler's account of how Hezekiah came to have all these riches in the first place 2 Chronicles 32 and 27 here in this area uh, you get a parallel account of this uh, whole situation you get the same in 2 Kings 20 incidentally but here in 2 Chronicles 32 27 Hezekiah had very great riches and honor and he made treasuries for his silver and gold and for his precious stones spices, shields, that is, is his armory and all kinds of valuables he also made buildings to store the harvest of grain, new wine and oil and he made stalls for various kinds of cattle and pens for the flocks he built villages and acquired great numbers of flocks and herds now why? Because God had given him very great riches. Now, there was an opportunity here, therefore, for these foreigners who had come from Babylon, who did not know the Lord, that when they came into Judah and began to move around Hezekiah's palace, he could have borne testimony to the fact that Jehovah, had opened his hand and blessed Hezekiah and his people with an endless supply of his riches. And that he had been the amazed beneficiary of God's goodness there in Judah. But you see, instead it appears as if Hezekiah's purpose was to show off his own personal wealth. And the people were profoundly impressed. Now the reason he does that is very clear from the surrounding history. What he is saying really is this, you see. Here are these people from Babylon and Hezekiah is saying to them, We are not some tuppenny halfpenny nation. We are not one of these little nations that you can write off or take on as a kind of satellite. We are a people worth putting your confidence in. Look at this, he says. Look at the armory. Look at the wealth that there is around you here. <coughs> and he's trying to impress the envoys of Babylon with all that Judah has so that they will take some notice of them. And you see his confidence, his boasting, his interest is in Judah's wealth rather than in Jehovah's faithfulness. Now that's always a great snare. These people from Babylon undoubtedly went away impressed, you see. And I would guess that that, quite ironically, is one of the reasons that they set their eyes upon Judah and said, we'll have that nation because they came back later 
And they deprived them of everything. They pillaged the place. And whereas Hezekiah thought he was going to impress them so that they would probably come back and say, well, we need a nice little alliance between ourselves and you, although we are the great nation, we're very impressed by you. They were so much impressed that they came back and burgled them of everything and took away their choicest people. Do you see what trouble people get into when they don't trust the Lord? Do you see it? The mess people make of their lives when they don't put their confidence 100% in Jehovah. And they suffered for generations because of uh, Hezekiah's failure of the test of pride. Now, this is one of the things, you know, that we really need to ask. There are people who come and inspect us as they came and inspected Hezekiah's palace and Hezekiah's wealth and so on. People inspect us in exactly the same way. What are they most impressed by? That's the thing that really matters, you see. Well, they'll be most impressed by the thing that we present to them most clearly. And in Hezekiah's case, it was his wealth and his power and so on. And they said, well, impressive, interesting. It wasn't Jehovah they were impressed by. Really interesting. I, I spoke to a young Christian man the other day who was looking for encouragement from another group of Christians and after some trouble found his way to, to get to this group of Christian people like himself as he thought and uh, he went into the room went into the building first of all it was difficult to get into it it was difficult to find the room where they were meeting but he persisted and got to the place and there he sat down he was in a strange environment and uh, he stayed there for an hour and a half and you know he said to me afterwards, he hasn't been a Christian very long. He said, not once during the entire evening was the name of God mentioned. And I didn't hear anybody speak about Jesus. Now that was a meeting of a particular group of Christian people. Meeting for a discussion. And it's a very significant question, you know. When people inspect us. What do they come away impressed by? That was the real issue. And they came away from Judah impressed by what Hezekiah had uh, amassed. Now the third test, and this is the last one, is that uh, he not only stumbled at the test of flattery, and he stumbled again at the test of pride, he stumbled in the third place at the test of selfishness. Notice how the last part of the passage tells us this. In verse 5, Isaiah comes to Hezekiah after he has said to him, What did these men say? Where did they come from? What did they see? And Hezekiah says, Well, they came from Babylon. They came to me, do you notice? From Babylon, all the way from Babylon to me, he says. That's uh, how he got flattered. Then in verse 5, Isaiah says to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. And he begins to spell out the word of God to him. He says, This is the truth 
My brother, here is the truth. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your own descendants, your own flesh and blood will be born to you, will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now that was a pronouncement of judgment and uh, it was a most dreadful thing to hear that contrary to all that he expected, what was going to happen was that these people were going to come from Babylon and carry off the cream of the people into Babylon and all this wealth that he had been showing to him. Now, you can imagine Hezekiah saying all sorts of things. You can imagine bowing his head to the ground and holding his head in his hands and saying, God help me. Or God help our nation. Or something of the kind. But do you notice what he says instead? Hezekiah replied, verse 8, The word of the Lord you have spoken is good. Good? How could such a word of judgment be good? And I don't, there's no record of what Isaiah said to him. But there is a record of why Hezekiah says the word of the Lord you spoke to me is good. What does he say? For he thought there will be peace and security in my lifetime. He said. This is the future he's talking about. There's going to be some disaster that will take place in the future. But he says, well, thank God anyway, in my lifetime it's going to be all right. I'm not going to be too badly touched by it. You know, that's the language of a man who has become absorbed in himself and his own affairs and his own interests and what is going to touch and harm him. And he says, well, thank God, the word of the Lord is good, he says, because at least it won't affect me too badly. Somebody said, what about your children and your children's children and so on? Well, you see, I reckon Hezekiah was one of these people who was a man who lived with short-term thinking and took short-term decisions and forgot about long-term consequences. It's a great danger, you know. There are so many people who trip up and fall because they have just had short-term thinking and haven't had long-term consequences in mind. And Hezekiah is living with the short-term because he's just living with his own interests in view. And that's really a very solemn thing for all sorts of reasons. It's one of the most unwise things in the world for somebody to live just making short-term decisions with short-term consequences in view and not thinking about the long-term. And if he had thought about the long-term, he would probably have lived differently. It happens, of course, in all kinds of ways, doesn't it? In the way that we are affecting the next generation 
It's the thing that we need to be thinking about in the church of God, you know, so often. What are we doing to those who are coming up in the next generation? Are we producing strong, virile godliness in the next generation? Or are we just touching them on the surface of their lives so that when they go into real trial and tribulation, they will begin to wilt and collapse? And it's an immensely important thing for us to have a sense of history in this connection, you know. We have been left a heritage from those who have gone before us. Some of it good, some of it dreadful. And the lesson of history is that we need to live with our eye on long-term consequences for the way we live, the way we act, the way we order and organize everything within our church. That is true for the nation as well, of course, you know. I wonder if you ever tremble listening to some of the things that are happening at a national level today and think about next century, we are on the edge of it now, and ask, what harvest are we going to reap in the next century amongst the generation after the one that's currently growing up? That's a solemn reality. And the Bible puts it this way, you see, the fathers ate sour grapes and the children's teeth were set on edge. And that's the Bible's way of saying to us, Hezekiah was really so wrong, you know, when he said, the word of the Lord is good, for he thought to himself, it won't affect me too badly. Oh, may God help us to live and to pray and to seek his face not only with a view to ourselves, but with a view to a generation that's yet unborn. Some of us have much cause to be grateful, with this I finish, for people who prayed for us before we were born. You know, I, I often tell people about an ancient relative of my mother's who used to go upstairs at night within their family, for she lived with them. She was her mother's sister. And she went away upstairs late at night, and she would be heard by the family through the door talking to herself, as they used to say, you know. Old Auntie Annie, they said, she just talks to herself up there, you know, a bit cracked. And what they would hear her saying was, Lord have mercy upon my sister and upon her children and upon her children's children. And they would all chant outside the door and on her children's 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 children, you know, and they made fun of her and thought it a great joke. But I'll never forget when my mother told me that, that that old woman was praying for me before I was born. She had an eye for history.
she was concerned for the long term. And oh, how greatly we need people who have learned to stand where Hezekiah slipped in this area. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the picture that you have given us over the whole of this great book of your word of a sovereign God presiding over history and gloriously bringing to pass his sovereign purposes and in the course of it teaching your children such practical and real and relevant lessons. Lord, help us for your mercy's sake that we may learn these lessons from you and that we may be quick to hear your voice and do your will for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ who came in the fullness of time born of a virgin to be the very Messiah for whom Isaiah looked. Hear our prayer as we ask for your gracious blessing upon us this evening for the glory of your name. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Reverend Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Reverend Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org, where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.